Join me in prayer again. Lord, we ask that you would speak. We ask that we would understand. We ask that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. And I pray that we would, uh, with open hearts and open minds, live differently by what you've said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Go ahead and open up in uh, your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Thank you. Um, we're going to be going through verses 1 through 11. And if you're using the provided Bibles in the pewbacks, it's page 916 if you'd like to cheat. Um, in the meantime, I want to let you all know that I have a deep affinity for Scotland. I love Scotland. I really do. It, uh, it might be because part of my heritage is Scottish, although my dad likes to say that we're Heinz 57. We've got every, everyone, uh, every flavor known to man. Uh, it could also be because my name is Scott and it's my land. Uh, but mostly it's because I, I love the beauty and the history of Scotland. I really do. I used to have a wallpaper on my computer that was the Scottish Highlands, and there was like a flock of sheep on it. And um, I, every once in a while, I put a castle as, as my wallpaper on my computer or my phone. But I, I, I really do love the beauty and, and history of Scotland, right? Um, I like uh, I like looking at those pictures. I like uh, I like evaluating the the history of the castles, and then I like watching uh, historically accurate documentaries like Braveheart with Mel Gibson. Um, however, I think that if I were to pack up in a plane and fly over to Scotland right now and see it, what it is today, I think I'd be disappointed. Um, beyond the touristy spots like those castle ruins and those highlands and, uh, and I mean, I, I guarantee there's still sheep there. Um, but, but beyond the, the pictures that I can look at now, Scotland's actually a really rough place. Um, right, as, as of today, I opened up BBC this morning, and BBC is not a, not a, 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 a medium for joyful news, typically. Um, but I, I discovered that as of this morning, there's political unrest. There's a current strike. There's actually two strikes that I read about uh, from unionized labor. Um, there's also a massive crime rate in some of the rougher neighborhoods of Scotland. Um, there's a lot of slums in Scotland. And again, that's just from reading some of the headlines on BBC. Sometimes the things that we expect and the things that we, we want and wish for are different from the things that are. Now, today we're going to be looking at a passage often titled The Triumphal Entry. Um, Oh, I didn't change the sermon summary in the bulletin. Just ignore the sermon summary. Anyway, uh, so the, the sermon summary today is, is that God is who he is, not who we think he is. And what we're, the reason I put that as the title is because the, the name triumphal entry is actually supposed to be a little bit ironic. Because though it, Jesus does march into Jerusalem and there's massive praise... There's also massive confusion, and, and there's some things that are different from a normal, triumphal, triumphant entry of a king entering his capital city. 
the triumphal entry is also known as, as Palm Sunday uh, because of how the Apostle John describes the entry in John chapter 12. And anybody that's been in the church for very long knows that Palm Sunday is just a few days before Easter. And we're entering the last couple days of Jesus's life on earth. So that's another reason that triumphal entry is meant to be a little bit ironic is because it, it spelled the beginning of the end for Jesus, at least his, his ministry on earth. I mean, he enters with great shouts of acclamation and joy, but just a few days later is put to death with shouts of condemnation and disappointment. So let's go ahead and read Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, or if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, uh, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees, palm trees, and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, uh, uh, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus. From Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about the messianic title, the son of David. We talked about this miraculous work that Jesus did to two blind beggars on the side of the road. And Jesus decided to heal them. But before he healed them, they were, they were shouting, have mercy on us, son of David, son of David, have mercy on us. This was probably just like a day or two before Jesus enters Jerusalem. And the emotions may have been running high for the rest of those few days, the rest of the trip up from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's met with a procession of those who had decided to travel with him, right? The people behind him and before him were shouting Hosanna. Um, and, and people had probably went before him or maybe, maybe they, they were on horses, not horses, camels, uh, and, and other beasts, beasts that were able to travel them, chariots. Maybe Jesus slowed down to have, have lunch with some disciples a couple times, and others went on ahead, and they spread the news that Jesus is coming. Uh, when a king enters a city after a victorious battle, they have this, this, this uh, or if, if they're going to be recognized as king, the, the king enters with a lot of pomp and circumstance. He, uh, he enters triumphantly, right? He, he rides on his war horse. He, uh, he wears his best clothes. He has other people throwing their garments out, almost like the red carpet, right? We do that for Hollywood still. We do a red carpet for all the actors as they're going in. Um, now we have the runway when, they go, when there's a movie premiere and they have all the, the uh, again, pomp and circumstance, all the, the 
people taking pictures, the 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 backdrops of the movie, um, all, all all the way in. But these for kings, right? The people throw their garments out, making a carpet. They have people shouting for the longevity of their reign. And these are all common occurrences in the in the ancient Near East, right? And some of it even carries into our culture today, right? If you were in the UK right now and you mentioned the Queen, uh, you'll probably hear "God Save the Queen," because because the the hope is that that the Queen's reign will continue for a long time, and it it really has. Anyway, but but the but you still have that pomp, that circumstance, that that ritual for the royal. And in the Near East, too, we have an example of, in 2 Kings 9.13, something similar, a king named Jehu. Uh, if, if we were to turn there, if we were to read the context, Jehu hears a prophecy of his demise. He decides to completely ignore it. Um, and he decides to go and, and have his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And in 2 Kings 9.13, uh, we read, then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu is king. This is this is a citywide party, right? This is everybody blowing their horns, everybody popping their little confetti confetti shooters. This is uh, this is everybody celebrating that this guy is king. And what would typically happen too is the kings would parade around the whole city. And they would they would evoke all this emotion and there would be all this this happiness and this joy that this this great king, look how handsome he is and look at how high of a horse he's riding on. And everybody would be in awe and they would they would declare this person is our king. So when Jesus is called son of David, when he enters Jerusalem and people are calling him son of David, it means the Jews are, are getting the king they expected. Finally, finally, this, this Messiah, this Mashiach, this, this Christ, the anointed one who was promised before is coming and it's wonderful. Oh, look, look at this incredible king wearing robes and riding on a donkey. Ultimately, they're crying out, and, and, and there's probably this air of disappointment. That's why people are asking, who's this dude? Why is everybody shouting? This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. From Nazareth? Does anything com good come from Nazareth? It's a slum. Galilee's a mostly Gentile region. Why, why are we happy about this guy? I opened with, uh, with the verses from Zechariah 9, which is what we read. Matthew said this was done to fulfill uh, what Zechariah 9 was. And if, I, I, I would invite you, if you're willing, to turn to Zechariah 9. If you were to read Zechariah 9, 9 through 17, you'd find the, what, what all the Israelites, what all the Jews were expecting I opened with reading just a couple of the verses, right? So, so they, were, they were expecting this triumphant king, right? Who's going to stop battlements from attacking Ephraim and Jerusalem, namely Israel and Judah. Zechariah 9.10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. Meaning he stops it. He stops everything from coming at him. And he shall speak 
peace to the nations. Now that's that's that that's more like commands peace. If you if you if you're reading the Hebrew, it means not like peace. You know, calm down, everyone. It's stop or else. My kids know that sound. My kids know that voice. Stop or else. <laughs> it means you're about to be in trouble. So Israel was expecting this, this triumphant king who's going to come in and he's going to stop the wars. And he's going to drive out this invading, occupying force of, of the Romans. And they were expecting a rescuing king who'd be setting the, 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 the battle captives free from the surrounding nations. That's in verses 11 to 12. As for you, all, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. They're expecting this guy who's going to ride in with a sword, who's going to cut down the enemies of Israel, who's going to, going, going to rescue these people that are in, in military prison for being zealous for their nation. And they were expecting a warrior king who's going to lead armies against occupying nations. That's verse 13. For I have bent Judah as my bow, meaning Judah's going to be behind this guy. I have made Ephraim its arrow, meaning, meaning Israel is going to, going to go forth and they're going to do battle. They're going to fly out. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior sword. They were expecting a warrior king. And lastly, they were expecting a righteous king who would evoke God's help to wipe out their most dastardly foes. That's verses 14 to 17. I won't, I won't read, read them in totality, but just to get an idea of what this sounds like. Then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar, meaning blood. Blood is pouring out. So when, when there was this messianic hope, there was this vision in, in the Pharisees and in the Jews of the time that Jesus was going to be this battle-hardened warrior, that he was going to come in like Mel Gibson at Braveheart, wearing the, <laughs> with the war paint on the side of his face. And he's going to come in and he's going he's to make war. He's going he's to kill the Romans. He's going to kill the enemies of Israel. And of course, all these things happened, but not in the way they expected. Christ is the triumphant king who brings peace through his gospel. Reconciliation between God and man. Man who is hopelessly rebelling against God. God reconciling the relationship. Our own sinful flesh is our greatest enemy. And he's wiping out the enemy's battlements by redeeming us despite our sinfulness. So Christ is the triumphant king. He's also the rescuing king who rescues us as captives to sin and darkness. If you read Paul in 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 26, you find out that, that Jesus' weapons are good doctrine, good biblical doctrine. 
And Christ is a warrior king who does battle with Satan and defeats him and his armies once and for all, consuming them in righteous fire and throwing them into the lake of fire to be tormented by God's wrath day and night. Revelation 27 through 10. So he is the triumphant king. He is the rescuing king. He is the warrior king. And lastly, he's the righteous king who is himself God and has the power of God to do all these things perfectly. But, but Jesus was not the Messiah that the Jews expected. He was not the Messiah that they thought they were getting. It's like, it, I, I hate to compare Jesus to this, but on a human level, it's like when you order that thing from Amazon and it looks so great and then you get it and you find out it's not only made in China, but it doesn't even have batteries and doesn't even work right. My kids had that happen. We got a dinosaur for Christmas. Like I had to put the batteries in, put the tail on and I pressed go and it went raw and it didn't turn on again. <laughs> That's that sort of disappointment is what started circulating Jerusalem the moment Jesus walked in, in his ironic, triumphant entry. And why, why weren't they expecting this promised Messiah? Why weren't they expecting Jesus? Well, ultimately, it's because they had stopped searching the scriptures to see if they were right. They were satisfied with their own knowledge. They were satisfied by what they'd been taught. They, they knew the sort of Jesus, the sort of Christ that they were getting, right? They knew the salvation that Yahweh was going to send, and it looked like a warrior king who was going to do battle and bring blood and, and thunder and all those things. So when we read in Matthew 21, 8, we, we read that only most of the crowd spread their cloaks. It wasn't everybody. It wasn't the whole city of Jerusalem. There's a good portion that's walking around like, why is everybody shouting? Have you ever been that guy or that, that girl where everybody's excited and you're like, I missed something. I have no idea what's going on. What's, what's going on? Or like when you're in a classroom and, and everybody's getting out that, their pencils and paper and you just zoned out for 30 seconds and, and you're, you just start doing it because you're supposed to, but you have no idea that a pop quiz is about to punch you in the face. We also read that, that the crowd is shouting Hosanna. Now I'm sure if you're like me, you've, you've heard that the word Hosanna means praise Right. Uh, or, or it's like a, it's, it's like an exclamation of praise. Um, Hosanna properly translated means save us, please. <laughs> it's a plea. It's not actually a declaration, but, but in conjunction with Jesus being called the son of David by some of this crowd, it means that, that they're saying salvation has come. Uh, it, it's an implication. It came to be mean. It came to mean that. And we read in Matthew 21, 10, that the, that there's that surprise in the city of Jerusalem that people are going around asking again, what, what's all this uproar? Why is everybody freaking out? What's going on? And then we can imagine that sort of disappointment when they find out that this dude's a prophet from Nazareth. And just, just to add to the shock of why, why this is so crazy that Jesus is walking into Jerusalem. Um, most, in Jesus' time, most of the so-called messiahs, 
never entered cities. They, they, they created these desert communities, like the Essenes, they created these desert communities where they could live about in peace, and they could be unbothered by the outside world, and they could, they could avoid having their doctrine checked by the Pharisees, who were supposed to be the keepers of good doctrine. Most of these messiahs of Jesus' time, and there were a lot of them, they remained on those outskirts of society where they could continue abusing their power and they could continue taking advantage of people that were willing, uh, read, read that word, dumb enough to contribute to their causes. But, but they, they avoided Pharisees because Pharisees could check them. But as we've read constantly in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus was interfacing with the Pharisees all the time. He was correcting the Pharisees. He was standing up to them. And he's created quite a stir. Every, every, all the Sanhedrin knows this Jesus character. That's why very quickly they try to plot his death. So when Jesus marches in, it is exactly as it was prophesied in Zechariah 9, 9 through 13. But it's not what the Jesus is not what the Jews expect. Now, if I, I know I read Zechariah 9, 9 through 13 in kind of an angry tone, because that's really how they they heard it, right? That when they when they read of this battling king, they 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 assumed that it was a a, a normal everyday battling king. <laughs> But, but there's these little clues in the midst of Zechariah 9, 9 through 13 and all the way through 17 that, that are things that you wouldn't expect, right? The first is that the king is righteous, has salvation, and he's humble, Zechariah 9, 9. Kings are not often known for their humility. Yet this king is, is described as humble or lowly would be another way to translate Zechariah 9, 9. Uh, Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart, or gentle and humble in heart in Matthew eleven twenty nine. So here's this humble king marching in, exactly as Zechariah prophesied, but not at all as the Jews expected. The second is that he's riding in on a donkey, right? Um, well, donkey's colt. But kings ride impressive war horses, right? You, the king is supposed to be on the tallest horse, the nicest tank, the greatest chariot, right? The, the king is, is supposed to be celebrated by having the best of the best. You don't often see the president of the United States rolling around in a Ford Focus. And not only that, nobody rides a donkey into battle. You would not strike fear in your enemy if you're on this little stocky donkey, hee-hawing its way into battle, holding a sword. You don't. That's not the way it works. And yet Zechariah prophesied that this humble king would come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. And Jesus does set prisoners free from the waterless pit. 
Jesus is rescuing those held captive by the exhausting and dehydrating religion of the self-made righteousness of the Pharisees. He's doing all these things. These are all things that Jesus does. And, and yet when we read it, even when we read it now, we assume like, yeah, God's going to rouse up Ephraim and Judah. And one day they're going to go forth from, from the nation of Israel and they're going to conquer the world. But what if we understand the prophecy wrong? What if, what if God, being patient, is waiting for all of his elect to be gathered until he comes back and does war himself? What if, what if the rest of the New Testament witness is true? And we're waiting for God to do these great things. And we're just servants alongside. Now, I, I, I bring that up because... What, what the Jews did wrong is they assumed they knew everything. The Jews and the Pharisees specifically, Pharisees and Sadducees, they mastered the Bible. Uh, they, they mastered every bit of doctrine. They mastered every little, little truth that they could have. And so they knew for sure what this Messiah was going to be like. They, they, they were so solid and affirmed that, that they knew what the end times were going to be, that they could not be swayed or convinced otherwise. They knew so clearly who God was that they couldn't even say his name. They wouldn't say Yahweh. You can't get a Jew to this day to say the word Yahweh because that's God's covenant name. They'll say Elohim. They'll, they'll say Lord. They'll say God. They'll say everything except God's name because God's name can't be tarnished by human lips. They were so sure that they could not be corrected. In our modern day, and I say modern a little loosely, we, we had a return to seeing what God said about himself versus what man said about God. And we would call that the Reformation. Uh, historians, say last, uh, historians say the Reformation lasted from 1517, which was Martin Luther having hammer time, hitting his uh, 95 theses on the, the Wittenborg castle door, which, by the way, he didn't do. We talked about that, right? So the custodian probably glued it to the door. Anyway, uh, but, but Martin Luther, 1517, sparking the Reformation, uh, all, the, all the way up to 1648, which was kind of the establishment of the Church of England, uh, being, being more formal and more, more accepting, uh, and the Scottish Presbyterian Church. And, and, but, but the Reformation in total was a recovery of good gospel doctrine rescued from the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, of, of, of bad doctrine being, being propagated by man and, and suddenly, suddenly by God's grace, people going, well, hold on, what does God say about himself? Well, hold on, what, what does the Bible actually say? And what we need to take away from the folly of the triumphal entry, from the irony of the triumphal entry, is, is that, that we should not be like the Pharisees. God is who he is regardless of who we think he is. The Jews did not expect Jesus because they misunderstood and rightfully so misunderstood some of these prophecies. 
because they assumed they had perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom, and, and they, they had perfect intentions, and they were able to, to understand these things so well. But we need to be more humble than the Pharisees and recognize that we aren't as perfect. We have to constantly learn. We, we hear things and we misunderstand them. We misapply statements about God. I've used this example before, but everything Benjamin Franklin said is not in the Bible, right? A penny saved is a penny earned, maybe a nice Sunday school lesson, but it's not in the Bible. Nor is God helps those who help themselves. That is not in the Bible. So if we hear these catchphrases, if we've been taught something and we don't take it back to the word of God and try and try and take these things and, and learn from what God says and maybe maybe try and correct some of our own misunderstandings, then we're no better than the Pharisees who murdered Jesus just a few days after he walked through the gates of Jerusalem. Time and time again, Jesus taught with true knowledge, with true wisdom, with true intentions. He healed the sick. Lepers who Pharisees wouldn't even come within 10 feet of. He cast out demons that were oppressing people, having, uh, causing suffering like throwing people into fires. He showed himself over and over again to be exactly the king that the Jews needed. And people knew it. People learned it by the grace of God working in, in their hearts. They, 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 they understood that this Jesus was the right one. And the one the Pharisees thought was coming was the wrong one. Jesus is the king the Jews need. But he wasn't the king that the Jews expected. And Jesus is king. He's the triumphant king, the rescuing king, the warrior king, and the righteous king. If you turn to Revelation 20, you read a really fun Jesus. You, you read of Jesus coming in on a, on a white horse and he's making war. That's my favorite. My favorite Jesus right there is the war Jesus. The one who comes and make war, makes war with the nations and, and causes peace to come. But maybe that war doesn't look like I want it to look. Maybe that war is repentant hearts. People coming to true knowledge. People worshiping God as God. Not, as, not God as they want him to be. We always have to look at prophecy and know that we, we should hold it with kind of an open hand, right? We hold it firm enough that we don't drop it. But, but we don't hold it too firm that we break it. God is who he is. He, he was who he was, and he will be who he will be. We need to remember always that, that God is doing as he intends, but he's not always doing as we expect or want. I'm really sure that if I went to Scotland, I'd be disappointed. Because the Scotland I want is not the Scotland that is. So my application, again, from this moment in Christ's ministry is don't be like the Pharisees and assume you know who God is if you're not constantly comparing your vision of God to who he says he is in the Bible. There's a reason 
There's a reason the, f the, the first few commandments tell us not to make God in our image. I know, I know, this is the first one. But, but, but there's a reason that the first couple commandments say, take God who he is, not God who you want him to be. Don't make these idols. Don't worship these false gods because it's really easy to do it. Therefore, we need to test our theology with the Bible. And by the way, if you tell me, oh, I don't like theology. I, 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 don't, I don't read theology. Theology just takes you away from God. It's dry. It's drab. It it's, it's not worshipful. You're wrong. Everybody has a theology. Everybody, including non-believers or theologians, they have, they, have, they have knowledge, they have ways to express God even if they don't believe in God. They might say their God is probability, like when I'm looking at statistics, right? Statistics are not my God, but statistics help me realize what's happening around. Uh, you might, you, there might be people who say that evolution is God, but they don't say evolution. They say, or they don't say God. They say, well, evolution is just a clearly perceived naturalistic principle. And therefore it's, it's valid because I can, I can identify it and I can see it. Our culture is making war with God and they have theology. They just don't call it theology. So if an atheist has a theology, so do you. Therefore, test your theology with the Bible. Test your heart to see if it would rather have a God in your own making. And pray that the Lord would give you a measure of grace to see God in his word. Because that's who God is. We had a fun conversation in our Tuesday uh, Bible study where there's certain catchphrases that you hear, right? Like, God cannot be in the presence of sin. Well, anytime God cannot is in a sentence, it, it causes me to go, wait, hold on, let's reevaluate this. But, but we had a great conversation because I've heard that. I've heard that time and time again. Somewhere it's programmed in my head that God cannot be in the presence of sin. But when I, when I look at the verse that's based on, God cannot look on sin. Was it Hosea 4.14, I think is, uh, no, Habakkuk 4.14. Now I'm going to forget. But, but uh, if we look at that verse, the verse is actually a complaint against God. It's, it's, saying, it's saying, you who cannot look on sin, why are you idly looking at sin? <laughs> You're not getting justice on the wicked. So therefore, this thing that I've learned that I have rotating in the back of my head, like, an or like a moon around an orbit of a planet, I have to constantly be thinking, well, hold on, does that really match up with Scripture? Does that match up with who God is? And I only use that as an example because it's something that the Lord gave me in the last week. And, and I love it when I get my theology checked with Scripture. When I'm reading the Bible and I'm like, oh, I didn't remember that happened that way. Hmm. How have I misinterpreted that one? That's why I read through the Bible every year, because I ain't perfect. So we have to constantly be checking our view of God, our vision of God, with who he says he is, so that we match up, or so that our, our worship of God matches up with who he is, instead of an idol of our own making. Let's pray, and let's sing our last song. And let's recognize that God is who he is. God is who he says he is, not who we want him to be. 
Lord, when I think of the triumphal entry, I think of how, how great it must have been and how, how, how amazing for your apostles to, to go and get a donkey and, and even have someone come up and say, hey, what are you doing, guys? And, and they just say, oh, the Lord has need of it. I think it's incredible that, that, that you marched in to Jerusalem the way you did. I think it's incredible that you marched towards your death which is true triumph against sin. And yet so many people misunderstood it. And so God, I pray that we would cry out, Hosanna, please save us. But also recognize that that's a declaration of what is. You've saved us. And let us praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We have only one option. We have only one option in this world that's right. Since we cannot master God, it's best to be mastered by him and learn of him and his word. Go in peace, saints.